The city of San Diego's leadership is going to be completely different in just a few months. No matter how you slice it, it's a massive loss for Republicans as we're guaranteed a Democratic mayor and a majority Democrat city council. On this special election episode of San Diego News Fix, we'll be discussing several key races in the city of San Diego. Here's what you need to know. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Michael Smolens, you're the political columnist for the Union-Tribune, and welcome back to the second edition of our special election podcast So a lot of big changes are coming to the San Diego uh, city political scene. Can you explain just how different things will be once the votes are tallied and people are sworn in in 2021? Well, as we've been seeing for some time, the Democratic trend is continuing and is continuing very strong in this city. Uh, We have the mayor's race, for instance, we have two Democratic candidates in the November election that's been unheard of in modern history in San Diego uh, for, for generations anyway. Nobody can remember the last time there wasn't a Republican uh, mayoral candidate. Uh, most of the mayor, recent mayors in history have been Republican. So that's real indication of where things have gone. Um, but I think you'll also see that, that uh, there's a, you know, there'll be a stronger Democratic majority on the city council. Um, not everybody's going to disagree. Partisan issues sometimes are different than municipal issues. What are some of the key issues that will define this race? Because it felt like, you know, local politics was going in one direction. The primary happened. And then just days later, the pandemic really became reality in California. Well, it it did. It's affected this race and campaigns uh, all across the country and certainly in San Diego. There's just not the kind of door-to-door activity. There's not the rallies. There's not the coffee clutches. So all campaigns have adjusted. Frankly, right now, they kind of feel a lot uh, the same. There is some precinct walking. People are doing it differently. So they have adapted. We'll have to see how things turned out. One of the surprises for a lot of political consultants was the, the fundraising, while not as good as under normal circumstances, wasn't as bad as they thought. So a lot of people have been able to to raise money. But, you know, interestingly, they've been talking about a lot of issues, but not really so much on how they would handle the future with the COVID-19 pandemic. And more importantly, for the fallout, the economic fallout uh, and the, the shortage of revenues that will be coming uh, toward the city. Yeah, it's not that surprising that fundraising remains somewhat the same, because if you think about it, the people that have been hardest hit in the pandemic are people that really didn't participate in the, you know, financial game of politics. But most well-off individuals continued to be well-off during the pandemic. Well, yes, but uh, people put a premium on the personal contact, uh, you know, the dinners and and, uh, the you know, the lunches and things like that. So there was a little uncertainty. They've, they've for some time, they've, they've you know, raised money by phone, online, uh, and now through Zoom. So, yes, I, I think it was, a, like I said, for consultants, sort of a bit of a pleasant surprise that it wasn't as bad as they thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And what do you think uh, the effect of name recognition has in an election like this in which everything had to change because of the pandemic? Because, I'm just making assumptions here, but one would imagine that a well-known name going in, that advantage kind of gets bigger when you have to campaign differently. Uh, certainly. I mean, you know, name identification is a, you know, having strong name identification is a big plus in any campaign. 
even more so now. And and I think uh, as we've seen that Todd Gloria, while he's only represented sort of the core San Diego City area, but that's eight years on the council, four years at the state legislature. So he's a pretty well-known uh, name and to a large degree, well-known entity in San Diego, which has given him a big advantage. Barbara Bree has made her name known because she's been very active, outspoken on some issues, but still she's been on the city council for just four years. Uh, she wasn't really known at all before then, although she was very politically active. So uh, that just goes to show some of the advantages that, that Gloria has had, along with basically broader support and better fundraising. Mm-hmm. And on that point, let's hear about the mayor's race. San Diego's mayor's race in, in 2020 is a really important race. It's the first time we've had an open mayor's seat in six years. Um, it's two Democrats facing off, Assemblyman Todd Gloria and City Councilwoman Barbara Bree. Uh, so we'll have, we'll have a Democrat either way because they're both Democrats. Uh, be the first Democrat since Bob Filner, who only served a, a short few months. So it'll arguably be our first Democratic mayor under the strong mayor form of government that came into being in 2005. My name is David Garrick. I'm a reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune, and I'm covering the mayor's race. Todd Glory and Barbara Bree are both Democrats, but they've taken some different positions on some key issues. Um, one is short-term vacation rentals, which has been an ongoing problem in the city of San Diego. Uh, Gloria would like to allow them, but pass some regulations. Um, and then Bree feels like the city should just enforce the rules they have in place, which basically don't allow them for the most part. Uh, it's been a long-running controversy. Um, Bree argues that uh, one of the, one key element of San Diego's housing crisis is that so many housing units are being occupied as short-term vacation rentals instead of being available to ordinary San Diego. I think Gloria's argument is that it's a, an important industry. It's unrealistic to think that it could go away. One key issue in that over the years has been whether Mission uh, Beach should, should be a cutout because it's allowed short-term vacation rentals for so long. Uh, another key issue is housing, which I, I mentioned tangentially there. Um, you know, Gloria and Bree used to be pretty similar on this issue. The idea is we need more affordable housing, more low-income housing, and a lot of intense development along transit lines. But during the course of the campaign, Bree has shifted more, I guess, centrist or right or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and she feels like single-family neighborhoods, the character of them is at risk with some of the proposals that Gloria supported when he was in the assembly, He's still in the assembly, uh, and a lot of the proposals that San Diego has embraced in, in recent uh, months and years to maybe not require high-rise buildings, to have parking spots, um, and allowing some really intense developments that can change the character of certain areas. Gloria's argument is we need to sort of prod reluctant communities that don't have enough housing to actually build it, or it won't get built at all, and no one can afford to live here. And when you look at economic reports, you know, employers say the number one challenge of coming to San Diego or expanding in San Diego is the inability for their workers to find housing. So, I mean, I think both sides have have interesting arguments to make. Uh, another issue is uh, the future of the Midway District, which is the area that surrounds the San Diego Sports Arena. Uh, for a long time, developers and, and housing proponents have said that's a great area to build lots of high-rise, affordable housing. Um, it'll be built really quickly because developers know that it's a very appealing area. It's near the beaches. It's near Mission Bay. It's near downtown. Um, the way the area is zoned now, it's part of the city's coastal height limit area, which was passed by a voter initiative in 1972. Um, so you can't build higher than 30 feet. So in conjunction with plans to redevelop at that area, there's a ballot measure this year called Measure E, which would lift that 30-foot height limit. 
So all the plans to get a new sports arena and they build a lot of housing there sort of depend on whether that measure passes. Gloria is for a new arena, for the high-rise housing, and for Measure E. Bree is against Measure E. She says it's an inside backroom deal between developers and city's sort of vested interests, um, and that it, it, it's a slippery slope, or arguably it, it's dangerous to sort of lift the height limit in one area, and then maybe it could lift it lifted in others. Mostly she's against the way that the deal took place between Mayor Faulkner and a developer to sort of develop that area. That's the number one reason she lists for being against it. Uh, another key issue is transportation. Uh, you know, Gloria is for sort of the Sandag plan of building a lot of trolley, um, you know, building a, a mobility hub with, that connects the airport to the trolley, um, and, and lots of ambitious proposals. I think Bree supports a lot of those, but I think she feels like maybe um, they might cost too much and they're going to change neighborhoods. She talks about tunneling under neighborhoods being something that, you know, she's concerned about. Um, and I think she feels like that automated cars, you know, the self-driving cars might change uh, things so much in the future and other innovations that maybe, you know, investing all our money in sort of an old school version of light rail maybe won't end up being the smartest move 20, 30 years from now when you look at this, the region's transportation future. Another key issue is the Ash Street building. That's that uh, controversial building. It's sort of a scandal where... Uh, downtown high-rise that the city bought in 2016 has turned out to be uninhabitable. It's got asbestos problems. Both candidates have tried to accuse the other of being at fault for it. Gloria was on the city council before he went to the assembly when it was approved. Uh, he was also the representative for downtown, and it's in downtown. So Bree argues that he knew about it, he was involved, he should be held responsible. His argument is that she, she joined the council in 2016 right as he was leaving, and that she's had a bunch of chances in the last four years to derail it, and she hasn't. In fact, she's voted to move forward. She says she had no other choice but to move forward. It was she was the council was already you know stuck with this thing that he helped get approved. So I didn't find a lot of merit in that, but that there's on either side. But there's a lot of new stuff coming out every day. My colleague Jeff McDonald has another story this week where you know it looks like maybe Gloria did know a lot about it. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert on it. That's one that they both have used against each other. I think Breen makes one interesting point though, and it fits with her narrative that Gloria is sort of a candidate of the way business is done in San Diego as usual. He's backed by the Chamber of Commerce. He's backed by developers. He's backed by organized labor. And her argument is that she would come in and change anything. So even if Gloria isn't responsible for Ashtree, I think her argument is that in the wake of that scandal, you need a tough manager who's not going to go with the flow with all of the vested interests. Gloria has repeatedly said the fact, the reason that all these vested interests like him is because they know He's a compromiser. He gets things done. He's a deal maker. And the only way for a mayor to be effective is to is to get bring groups together and make things happen. And if you're a, a, a mayor who can't do that, like like Bree might be, then then maybe she won't get anything done, even if she's a good sort of watchdoggy type of mayor. Initially, Gloria was the heavy favorite, and I guess he's probably still the favorite. But we've done some recent polls that have showed the race being very close within the standard margin of error. Bree was ahead, actually, in a poll we did in September. And then when we did more recently in early October, Gloria was slightly ahead, but both were within the poll's margin of error. So it makes it look really equal. The Gloria campaign says they have internal polling that shows him 15 points ahead. I have to say, when I asked the Bree campaign about that, they didn't dispute it, which makes me think it's possible that there are, there are other polls that are showing Gloria ahead. I've never really heard of a poll showing Bree way ahead. Um, so I'm guessing that Gloria is ahead, but again, all those polls show a huge chunk of undecided voters. Despite this being a high-profile, big-city mayor's race, 
a huge chunk of people don't know who these people are. You know, her name is pronounced Barbara Bree, but half the people I talk to still pronounce it Bry, B-R-Y, because they don't know her name, which is, I think, a telling fact. More an anecdotal thing, but I mean, I don't think she's as well known. Um, in the March primary, Gloria got uh, dramatically more votes than her. She finished second by a, by a narrow margin over Republican Scott Sherman. On the other hand, because she has positioned herself sort of um, center-left, and Gloria is arguably farther to the left, she probably is going to get a lot of those Sherman votes. Um, and so, you know, if you put her votes together with Sherman's votes, that's like 55% or something. Will she get all of them? No, but um, she still might get some votes on the left as well. I mean, she is, uh, she has been a liberal. She has a strong track record of supporting, you know, left-wing causes. She's kind of moved to the center a little bit in this race. And, and also just one more point, Gloria is not extremely far to the left. I mean, when he was on the council, he was considered more of a center-left, you know, councilman. So neither of these candidates are, you know, as far left as some other council people and other people we've had in the history of the city. The campaign has turned pretty dirty, and I think that was predicted by a lot of people. Um, I think because there isn't a stark difference between the two on lots of uh, political issues and ideology, they sort of attacked each other. It's unfortunate to see, I can just tell you from covering City Hall, these are two dynamic, competent, intelligent people who are dedicated to making San Diego a better city. And hopefully whoever wins, they can make peace afterward and all sort of the dirty campaign stuff can go away. So after hearing that from David, um, is there anything that really has surprised you about how this mayor's race has developed over the past several months? I, I think one of the surprises is a lot of people thought that they're two Democrats and on core Democratic issues, they're very much in sync. You know, when you come to gun control, abortion, uh, gay rights, things like that, uh, there, there's not a lot of difference between them. So people were sort of wondering, OK, what are the differences going to be? Well, they've drawn distinctions on a number of issues uh, that I think David has mentioned, um, you know, housing, transportation and other things. Again, getting back to that notion that municipal issues don't always fall along partisan lines. And when it comes to kind of the standard Democrat agenda, which it's worth noting that the majority of mayors in big cities are Democrats, is there anything that you see that either candidate, whoever wins, will be able to push as they start their first term? Well, I think you'll see more in terms of working conditions. It may depend. I mean, Todd Gloria has strong labor backing. Barbara Bree had good relations with a lot of uh, labor union types and their leaders, but she really didn't get their backing. Uh, so Todd Gloria had helped push through a higher minimum wage locally and uh, other worker protections. So I think you're going to see a greater push in that regard because, uh, uh, you know, he's in sync with the unions and frankly, he's going to owe them uh, something for their support uh, as he has in the past. And the other big change is changes that are likely to come to the city council. Here's David Garrick again. There are five out of the nine city council uh, seats are up for election in November, uh, five separate runoffs. Um, it's an unusual year because we have uh, incumbents who were expected to easily win re-election who decided to run for higher office. Uh, that's Barbara Bree in Council District 1 and Chris Ward in Council District 3 and George at Gomez in Council District 9. So we really had five wide open races, which was a surprise to people, you know, a year or two ago. Um, so it created some interesting battles that we didn't expect. Um, we have uh, two races where you have uh, sort of old fashioned Republican versus Democrat races. That's in District 5 and District 7. 
And then in districts one, three, and nine, you have Democrat versus Democrat races. I'm David Garrick. I'm covering the city council uh, races in districts three, five, and seven. I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania, and I'm covering the city races in district one and nine. The, the city the city council right now it's basically seven to two uh, uh, Democrats versus or six to three Democrats versus uh, Republicans. Uh, Mark Kersey's an independent. He was a Republican who became an independent. Uh, I guess it was about a year ago. Um, so the question is whether the Democrats will increase their majority from six votes to seven or possibly even eight. Uh, there are two contested Republican versus Democrat races. If the Democrats win both of those, they'll have an eight-one majority with Chris Kate being the only Republican. Uh, in District 7, that seems likely. I don't know. The polls seem to, or the, the results from the primary seem to indicate that Raul Campillo is likely to win against Nolizosa. That would make the majority up to 7. The other race seems like a coin flip. Uh, in District 5, it's uh, Marnie Von Wilpert, a Democrat, versus a Republican named Joe Leventhal. We don't do polling, so it's hard to, hard to know. Uh, so it looks like it'll probably be either 7-2 or 8-1. to one. But I, I don't want to say for sure that Democrat rule Campillo in District 7 is going to, to beat uh, the Republican Nolizosa. We don't do polling. We're not sure. All I know is that in the primary, Campillo won by quite a lot. And there were five candidates. They were uh, four Democrats and one Republican. So Campillo got the most votes and he was competing against other Democrats. So it looks good for him based on limited knowledge. Uh, in District 3 is a Democrat on Democrat race. Uh, Stephen Whitburn uh, versus uh, Tony Duran. Uh, Whitburn won easily in the primary, and he's raised quite a bit more money. Duran was sort of a surprise second-place finisher, I guess you could argue. Um, but again, we don't do polling, so it's possible Duran will pull off a win. She's a Latina, and Whitburn is white, and she's a woman, so it's very possible that uh, she will she will win. So for District 1, we also have two Democrats. We have Joe LaCava and Will Moore. Um, I believe Joe LaCava um, got the most votes during the primary. So, um, and then in District 9, we have Kelvin Barrios and Sean Elo Rivera. They're both Democrats as well. Uh, Kelvin Barrios got the majority votes in the primary. Um, he has been suspended his campaign, so, um, but he's still on the ballot, so he could still be elected. Kelvin Barrios suspended his campaign. Uh, this happened um, after you know several media reports of a criminal investigation against him handling contributions to the San Diego County Young Democrats. Uh, there were, you know, a couple of, I mean, like 29 questionable spending. Um, so after, before that, too, there were, um, he was fined by the Fair Political Practices Commission for mishandling donations. And um, there were also reports that there were discrep discrepancies in income disclosure documents. I think one thing to note is that he was strongly supported by labor unions and they have withdrawn their support in the wake of these allegations. So that doesn't mean he can't still win, but they were probably going to do a strong get out the vote effort at his behalf, and that won't be happening, one would one would think. Yeah, and when he decided to spend his campaign at first, he wasn't um, directly saying, you know, if, if I win, uh, you know, I'm going to take the state or not. And then afterward, kind of turned around and said, you know, if voters elect me, then I may, I may take the state. So. And you have to wonder what might happen in that case. I mean, recalls are very expensive, but it just seems like if someone with this many uh, uh, problems, alleged problems, I guess, uh, and a pattern were to be elected, you just wonder what, what might happen. Uh, it's worth noting that District 9 has the lowest voter turnout and the lowest percentage of registered voters of any of the districts, sort of a low-income district. Um, 
in the center of the city, it includes City Heights, but it also includes Talmadge and Kensington, which are more sort of single family residential neighborhoods. So it's kind of an odd mix of neighborhoods in District 9. One thing I think to mention that is important is that we're going to have our first Democratic mayor in a really long time, unless you count the short period that Bob Fellner was in charge, which I don't think a lot of Democrats want to count. Um, so it's interesting to have a Democratic mayor. So instead of having a city council that's Democratic-led versus a Republican mayor in Kevin Faulkner, you're going to have a Democratic mayor, either Todd Gloria or Barbara Bree, working with a Democrat-led city council. So it'll probably be a lot more acting in unison instead of this fighting back and forth between the two parties and the sort of divided government we've had under Faulkner for the last six and a half, seven years. Um, so uh, issues that are coming up, short-term vacation rentals, seems like it'll never go away. Uh, Councilwoman Jennifer Campbell just proposed something that went to the Planning Commission, I guess, two weeks ago. That'll be a key issue. Um, you know, the city's obviously going to have to deal with a huge budget crisis because the city relies a lot on tourism revenue, um, and that's mostly gone. And the federal government gave them a bunch of money this last spring because of the coronavirus to fill the gap. But that money may not be here next next spring. And so there may be a huge budget gap. And that'll be a question of what do you cut? Um, you know, typically Republicans, Democrats are similar on what you cut. You, know, you, you don't cut police and fire. You cut stuff that's a little bit less crucial, like libraries and parks. I assume that they'll follow that model. But there may have to be a lot of cutting. Uh, and the city's pension payment continues to go up, which makes it would have been hard to balance the budget even without this situation. So that's certainly a, a problem. The city's also focused a lot on race and equity in, in the wake of the protests in the spring. Uh, Councilwoman Ma Monica Montgomery Stepp, who was not up for re-election, uh, she created an office of race and equity. Um, and sort of handling that and figuring out how to work that isn't going to be another key issue for the city to grapple with. And the budget of the police department, which is sort of a related topic, does the city want to adjust how much they prioritize police maybe come up with uh, models for police reform and, and change the way that they, they fund that. That'll certainly be a debate. I don't know how much change will take place, but with a seven to two majority or an eight to one majority, the Democrats will pretty much have free reign to do it any way that they see fit. I think splits will emerge. I mean, they always do. I mean, it, it, especially when there's no one else to argue with, um, you know, uh, so that'll be interesting to see. Uh, you know, and we don't really know, you know, the, these, these people that are, who are running the new people, we don't really know how Stephen Whitburn, who may or may not win, but seems like a favorite, and Joe LaCava, you know, how do they stand on every issue? I mean, they've taken some stands. Everyone thinks that housing and homelessness are important. Everyone sort of has a slightly different idea of the best ways to solve those things. Um, so it'll be interesting with five new members, you know what I mean, and a, a new uh, bolstered Democratic majority. It's like a whole new frontier. And you have a new mayor right? A first Democrat mayor in a really long time. So, I mean, it's going to be a whole lot of new things at, at City Hall. And I suppose there's some chance we'll have a new city attorney. Mara Elliott is in a relatively close race with Corey Briggs. I don't know how much that would change things, but that would be an, another element of change that would probably be maybe too much change, some would say. You know, it's a lot of different faces and a lot of different people and a lot of people who lack institutional knowledge. Chris Kate will be the only council member who's been there with more than two years experience because the other three who are returning all were elected in 2018. So after hearing that recap, this is certainly going to be a different San Diego City Council drastically from what we've seen in the past. Um, do you expect to see any kind of big plans or big changes in the beginning? Or is it what many people fear with so many new candidates in which the beginning is just going to be learning how to do the job? Well, there will be a lot of that. I mean, it's so rare that you just have, as David pointed out, a, you know, a whole new majority, uh, you know, of the city council being elected for the first time. 
so that's going to be a, an issue. But in a broader sense, you know, he had mentioned that that we're going to have a new mayor. And granted, they both have had city hall experience. And Todd Gloria, for uh, you know, several months was the you know interim mayor, and the, after Bob Filner stepped down during his debacle. But also, you've got the the new council members. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, there's just been an exodus of uh, longtime city staffers, in part because of the pension restrictions and the pay has not been as good in San Diego as has been with other cities, even smaller cities. So you've got top officials leaving to go to like the city of Carlsbad and things like that. That lack of institutional memory among staff, uh, the new council members and a new mayor uh, really will present a challenge for this city uh, starting next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a problem that seems to affect a lot of things in San Diego. I I think of uh, police officers, for example, in which an argument is that because they're not paid as well, that's why we're not getting as great as officers as we possibly could be. Well, yes, and and there's big concern about turnover uh, regarding that, and they've made moves, I think, to try to improve that. They've been giving pretty good pay raises to certain targeted areas of police officers, uh, so they've seen some, a little more stability there, I think. Uh, they still have, have ways to go. But, uh, you know, I mean, to a degree, San Diego has uh, done stuff on the cheap. It's been able to, uh, but maybe in some respect, uh, those policies are coming back to haunt the city. And uh, one of the issues that occurred uh, in June was uh, the vote on the police budget in which it was approved. Much of the frustration of many San Diegans who were part of the Black Lives Matter protests. And it's worth noting that even though that there was all this focus of Minneapolis defunding their police department, in the end that didn't happen. How do you expect this council to tackle this problem of increased scrutiny of policing in San Diego? Do you think this will be a key issue in the next term? It it will be for a number of reasons. One, uh, people are more aware of it, uh, while the the, uh, some of the you know. feeling and, and uh, activity of Black Lives Matter has f- faded some from the, the peak of the summer when there were, you know, r- uh, protests constantly, it seemed like that's still going to be there. I think that that concern about uh, police behavior, the very small minority of police that are not uh, uh, following rules properly and acting properly, there's broader awareness and concern about that. So you have that. Also, it's very likely that the citizens of San Diego, the voters of San Diego will pass this police reform measure that's going to create an independent police review commission. They don't have that now. They have a commission that's basically relying on the police department information. So that could make a big difference. What'll be interesting is even if voters pass that, which I think they're expected to do, the city council has to approve uh, an ordinance that basically makes it happen. The devil can be in the details there. And that's really where I think the fight can be because the the Police Officers Association, which basically has killed these efforts in the past, has kind of backed off this time. They can read the room. They know the public sentiment is that people want an independent look at police uh, departments, even if they support them. But I think where they'll try to get their influence is on helping shape that ordinance, which could have a uh, you know, a lot to say in how this commission operates and what kind of scrutiny ultimately happens with uh, the police department. Yeah, it's certainly tenuous. Uh, you know, San Diego is one of the safest large cities in the nation, but at the same time, there have been instances of officer-involved shootings and racial incidences, uh, you know, not even just in the San in the city of San Diego itself, but in the region that, you know, even though it's a different agency, 
the deaths of Earl McNeil and Alfred Alongo do create scars in the wider community. Yes, uh, and and clearly uh, the cumulative effect of those things, plus the studies that have shown, uh, you know, traffic stops, there's been a certain racial component into the stops uh, that, that has uh, emerged. So all those things collectively ha- have come up. But I think people lose sight of the fact that, that public safety is still important to people. They want it done right. Uh, you know, this whole defund police movement, I think, has sort of diminished, not that people don't want change, but people didn't really know what that was. And its bottom line suggests that they want to just take all the money away from police departments. I, I think even in, uh, you know, underrepresented communities, I feel that they've been the brunt of some bad police actions don't want that entirely. They want some changes. And I think what will the big change will be some pushes of shifting some resources to mental health services to get people out there. That's those are the, some of the big problems they have. Uh, but also further training on, on you know, sort of racial perspective for police officers. Uh, so there's a long road to go. But as you say, even though crime is ticking up everywhere a little bit for the most part, San Diego is still considered one of the safest, uh, certainly big cities. And I think, you know, overall, despite the protests and the loud voices, a lot of people are supportive of, you know, law enforcement doing its job properly. Mm-hmm. And once we get into 2021, how do you imagine Republicans will take this moment? Because even though Republicans don't have much representation in the city of San Diego itself, there is still a significant number of Republicans. There's a significant number number of independents who share many of the business-minded views that Republicans have. How do you expect them to regroup and, you know, at least have a candidate on the city council or, you know, maybe tip one of those seats back? How do you expect they'll respond to, you know, what is already a loss? Well, I I think you'll see, you know, as has been for some time, you know, the very localized focus on local issues, Uh, the the broader state and national picture here in San Diego has been a disaster for Republicans. And frankly, they're, you know, Regardless of how people feel and how they'll vote about Donald Trump, if Donald Trump's reelected, that's still going to be a problem for Republicans. And rebuilding is really what they have to do, uh, not just in San Diego, but statewide. Uh, the, you know, the numbers have been going down both uh, in voter registration and certainly office holders. And I think that, that there's been a push to get back to more regional issues. The state party has uh, voted in some leaders that want to kind of folk, get a California-centric view but, you know, the, the president uh, uh, sort of takes sucks the oxygen out of the, the whole political world, and it's hard to, for them to move forward. I mean, I know it's hard to say that, gee, they'd be better off if their standard bearer didn't win, but I think that uh, that would free them up to, to get more attention on where they want to go, because the, the hard partisan issues just aren't working for them in, in San Diego and in California, because the, the political trend, the democratic trend is going against them, and they need to find those issues that speak to people uh, to, if not convert them back to Republicans, to give Republicans more candidates, more consideration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like, especially recently, a lot of the specific San Diego issues are not issues that are facing the nation at large. So that's kind of why you feel like you're almost in separate worlds when it comes to solving the problems that government is able to here in our little bubble. Right. And, uh, you know, just as a sign, getting back to what I was saying, that, you know, in the 
very local campaigns in the mayor's race, supervisor's races, uh, Republicans or even some Democrats are being sort of tied to Donald Trump to large part unfairly. But uh, there's always sort of a grain of one vote or non-vote or something they did that, that uh, you know, gives people that opening. And that's pretty rare in very local races. Uh, so clearly the people on the left, the Democrats, think that that certainly is a helpful issue. And it, it has worked. Uh, we've seen it in the last election cycle in 2018 on a supervisorial race. So I think that that moving forward that, you know, as long as Republicans are going to be tied to somebody as unpopular in San Diego and California as President Trump, it's going to be a pro problem problem for them, even if they continue to focus on very local issues. Well, another election that's not quite getting as much attention, but has grown interesting, is the city attorney's race. Mara Elliott, uh, the first term incumbent, uh, is up for re-election. And she seemed to have smooth sailing. Uh, for a while there, it was uncertain whether any substantial opponent would oppose her. Uh, an attorney, Corey Briggs, did. He had actually decided to initially run for mayor, but uh, shifted to the city attorney race. And uh, he's presented, uh, you know, a tough opposition. She has become embroiled in a lot of controversy around the, the 101 Ash Street building. The city is, you know, taking over. And, uh, of course, that's turned into an absolute real estate boondoggle. And it's mostly in Mayor Kevin Faulkner's lap. But the city attorney's office did have a role in the contract. And uh, she's been uh, uh, criticized for that, certainly by Briggs, but not just him alone. That's really the focus of his campaign. Uh, you know, on balance, she's uh, got the Democratic Party endorsement. Uh, she's been very strong on, on gun, local gun regulations, and she, she's received uh, national attention for that, even in the New York Times. So, I mean, it's hers to lose. But I think that, that you know, this real estate deal and some other actions out of the city attorney's office have left her a little bit more vulnerable than uh, she might otherwise have been. Yeah, it'll be curious to see because, you know, ongoing issues like the 101 Ash Street deal are kind of the focus of the San Diego political world. But there's a lot of people that don't pay a ton of attention to these local issues. So it'll be curious to see kind of how things go and what salient messages get across to a lightly engaged, moderately engaged voter base. Oh, yes, and I absolutely agree with you. Uh, you know, the, the, the real estate deal deserves a lot of scrutiny, but it sort of has become a central issue in some campaigns. And yeah, I'm not sure, you know, people are aware of it, but it's very complex and who's responsible. Everybody's trying to pin it on their their political opponent, and it's unclear what roles people really had beyond the mayor's administration. I mean, Mayor Faulkner, it's, it's, it was clearly his deal, but others did did play a role. Uh, it Unfortunately, it's unshadow, overshadowed certain issues, I think, uh, in, in campaigns, not necessarily in news coverage, of housing, of transportation, really long range issues that will, you know, shape the future of the region uh, and its uh, prosperity and challenges. And uh, uh, the candidates have been talking about those. But as you see, a lot of their advertising is negative on these other issues. Yeah, especially when it comes to housing, it'll be curious to see what happens in San Diego because um, some reporting from Phil Molnar is saying that even though unemployment remains you know, high in the region, there has been a lot of evictions in San Diego because, of course, the moratorium and also a willingness of landlords to work with their renters. And we know that rent has always been high in San Diego and the housing prices are going up because people are taking their houses off the market. So it'll be curious to see what happens when we get further into 2021 as to what the future of housing is 
looking like? Well, in the immediate future, I, I have great fears. You're, you're right. The, the evictions haven't been as much as people might have thought. It's still early. You know, moratoriums are ending. Uh, rental assistance can't last forever. Uh, you know, hopefully employment picks up. It, it's been doing better. It's still you know, very bad, around 9%, 10%, but that's better than it was, I think, 15 16% uh, months ago. But, you know, I mean, eventually landlords are going to have to be paid. Uh, mortgage companies are going to have to be paid. So will we be seeing a, a, you know, a real broad spectrum of foreclosures, uh, which presents a lot of problems. It also will mean a lot of housing is available. Uh, are corporations going to pick those up and, and kind of get into that uh, sort of not monopoly, but control over certain aspects of the housing market? So there's a lot to play out here. Um, and uh, while you mentioned some kind of quasi positives or things not that bad regarding moratoriums, uh, I think it's, uh, it's still early and there's going to be a lot more pain to come. All right, Michael Smolens, thank you so much. Thank you. And now, one more thing. There are several ballot measures that city voters will decide on. Here are two key measures that will have big implications for San Diego. San Diego voters will have the choice this election uh, to create a new police oversight body, uh, the Commission on Police Practices, if, uh, if Measure B is approved, then it will create the new commission and get rid of the, uh, the old board, uh, oversight board, which is the Community Review Board on Police Practices. My name is Alex Riggins. I cover public safety and breaking news at the San Diego Union Tribune. And uh, I've also been focusing on police oversight for the last few years. Measure B has been uh, in the works for a few years now. There is a a group called Women Occupy San Diego, who have been really pushing for stronger police oversight in San Diego for several years now. Um, they attempted to get a, a similar measure uh, on the ballot in 2018, and were not able to do so. So they've been working uh, since since before then, and, and since that um, that effort failed, they've been working to get this measure on the ballot. Um, they basically just want stronger oversight for. Uh, police in San Diego. They want a board that has subpoena powers that can investigate on their own um, when there is a complaint of uh, misconduct by police, when there is a police shooting, um, when there is an in-custody death. Uh, They want a board that has more power to look into those incidents and really have some independence in the way that they investigate um, allegations of police misconduct. So the, the oversight board, uh, the new commission, um, like I said, was in the works for, um, for a long time before this summer's protests uh, over the death of George Floyd and, and you know, the death of Breonna Taylor. Um, it, it's been something that's been on the mind of, of local social, social justice activists um, for a very long time now. Uh, it definitely got a lot more attention um, because of because of what happened this summer, um, you know, in the in the week or so after uh, the killing of George Floyd, um, Mayor Mayor Faulkner came out in support of this measure, uh, which you know it's hard to say if that would have happened without uh, what happened this summer. Um, so the latest poll that we saw, um, over fifty percent of people uh, polled uh, support Measure B. Um, if you you know, in, in, in who supports it and who opposes it, um, we see that there's, you know, something like 80 
uh, grassroots groups that, that support this measure. And there's actually no official uh, opposition to this measure. So it looks pretty strong to pass. Um, and what it will do is, is it will create, um, like I said, this new oversight board that's pretty much fleshed out. Although uh, once, you know, if it does pass, then the city council will pass an ordinance um, kind of kind of making all of the details of it and exactly how it will work. Um, and then at that point, you know, we'll know, we'll know how strong it's going to be, uh, how much, how much they'll really be able to accomplish. Um, and, you know, if we'll be seeing reports uh, from this commission on, on police misconduct and shooting incidents, um, which, you know, which is kind of the goal and, and we'll see if that happens. Measure E is on the ballot because the community planning group for the Midway District would like to see the area, which is about uh, 1,300 acres, just over 1,300 acres. That planning group would like to see the area revitalized, and they believe lifting the height restriction is the key to getting business owners and would-be investors to take an interest in that area. With They say without... Uh, without the removal of the height limit, there will be no new development. The area will continue as is, which is a very car-centric place to be with a lot of asphalt and suburban-style shopping centers. I'm Jennifer Van Grove. My beat is growth and development. For Measure E, a yes vote simply means that you want the Midway Pacific Highway Community Plan Area to be excluded from the city's coastal zone. It does not mean that you are voting in favor of any specific development, say the sports arena project that's currently ongoing. So a vote in favor of um, Measure E would lift the height restriction, but not approve any one specific project. All projects will go through the city's typical uh, project planning process. Based on a recent poll conducted by the Union Tribune and 10 News, Measure E is in a position to pass. So 37% of people surveyed say they are in favor of removing the coastal hike limit. 25% said that they're against it. However, the big question mark here is 38% of people who were surveyed said they are not certain. And that possibly has to do with Midway District being this um, area that that it may be unclear to people whether it is in the coastal zone and whether it deserves protecting. We won't know until Election Day. Should Measure E fail, this likely won't be the last time that we hear about the coastal height limit in the Midway District. For instance, developers like Brookfield Properties, which has taken an interest in the city sports arena parcel, they could theoretically come forward and try to seek an exemption to that restriction um, for that particular parcel. So we'll just have to see how this plays out in November, but then anticipate that there may be other discussions on this going forward as well. Thanks for listening to another special episode of San Diego News Fix. On the next election episode, we'll be discussing what to expect from the UT on election night. So far, more than half a million voters have cast their ballot in this election. If you're able, mail your ballot today or drop it off at a drop-off location. The more ballots are returned, the more concrete the results will be on November 3rd. If you still want to learn more about a specific race, check out our elections dashboard. 
That's SanDiegoUnionTribune.com slash elections dashboard. All one word. Until next time.